Indonesia, a land of mystery. From the thick jungles of Sumatra to the crystal clear waters of Lombok. Hi, I'm Kyle, and let me take you on a journey across this wonderful land to meet the people who make the hospitality industry in Indonesia world class. Whether you're a veteran in hospitality, a seasoned investor, or someone looking for a sea change in life, this podcast covers everything that you need to know to inspire your next move in Indonesia. Alejandro, welcome to the Indonesia Hospitality Podcast. Thanks for having me here. Now, this year has been pretty crazy. We were just talking earlier that we knew about ourselves and our place in the world has been flipped upside down almost by COVID-19. You've just come back from a massive trip in Sumbawa. Tell me what makes this moment in time so unique for yourself? Well, I guess there's a few things, right? I guess I speak for many of us that work in the hospitality industry. We're definitely not as busy as we were last year. This kind of space and quiet, uh, I think will affect people in different ways. In, in my particular case, I had been looking forward to some time off, some downtime, some time to reassess. COVID has been the perfect situation for me to, to have precisely that. So yes, I've been obviously surfing a lot, which is, which is really great because it's one of the things that brought me here. It's probably the main thing that brought me here to Indonesia initially. That was its, its, its first appeal to me living halfway around the world. This downtime has allowed me to surf a lot, to also really reflect a lot on, on values and things that really matter. Yeah, it's been an amazing year. I guess the most unique thing from a perspective of living here Obviously, there's the uncrowded surf, but there's also the connection with the people. It, it almost feels like things become a bit more meaningful when, to us and to them, when we are in times of struggle together, they see you here on the good times, but they also see you here on the bad times. And um, you're able to have more time to sit and have a coffee and, and get to know them and know more about them. These are maybe people you knew and, and connected with a long time ago, but we're all busy. so. It's nice to kind of reconnect with people. And this extends to people abroad, at home, friends. So I think it's been a great time. It's almost like this crisis forced us to come together as a community. Now, you touched on why you came to Indonesia. It's quite an incredible story of actually how you came to be living in Lombok. Do you mind sharing that with listeners? It was kind of one of those things where I I always just describe it as I didn't choose Indonesia, but Indonesia chose me. I came here on a surf trip with a plan to to go to Bali and Sumatra and stay here for about six weeks. And I had never been to Indonesia before. It's quite far from my hometown in El Salvador. Yeah, I was just blown away by it. Um, As as I arrived in Bali, I thought it was so different to what I had expected. I had expected like pristine virgin islands. I somehow expected it to be a lot smaller than it is. Yeah, I was quite shocked. It was quite urban, but it had a really beautiful charm in, in the culture, in the people, and in the vibe of the travelers. So I met some people that kind of made Lombok happen for me. I, I met this, these guys uh, that were friends with a person from Lombok and he was coming here and they invited me over. And when I arrived to Lombok, I think Lombok really gave me what I was expecting from Indonesia as a whole, the pristine uh, beaches with no one, the feeling of exploration and discovery. And uh, that's exactly what made me stay here. Things just started happening around me. I met I met some people that were looking to develop things. I really saw the on top potential of the island, and ten years later, I'm here doing what in that moment became my dream. 
your background was in property law, right? Uh, before you came to Indonesia. Yeah, that's right. So tell us, um, how did that help you in making that decision? Well, I think it was it was quite crucial. You know, it it felt a little bit like all the stars were aligning back in two thousand, early two thousand eleven, when I first came here. Yeah, as I was saying, I came here. I really liked it. I started thinking, damn, I need to stay here. I need to find a way. But this is like a completely alien thought. Like picture yourself going halfway around the world on a holiday and somehow feeling a calling to stay, but you know nobody. Um, it, it, it all seems like a bit alien, you know. Um, but somehow there was like a, a strong conviction in me that this would happen somehow. Yeah, in, in that quest, I started thinking, how do I do it? I, I even considered like, going to dive school and, and, and offering just to help or surf guiding or something like such. Um, I had no idea how difficult it is to actually achieve moving here, much less, um, much less back then. And um, yeah, interestingly, I, I met a person who has um, a resort and he had a land, land sales, a property, a property business going and he became interested listening to my story on the fact that I was actually a real estate lawyer, which is, I never actually considered that that could be of help. And then he introduced me to some of his clients and his clients were looking to develop a property. That's how we got in touch with the guys that later became my business partners. Together, we developed a, a pretty large development project that was my, basically my, I, I call it my scholarship to staying here. We've split up this podcast into three parts so that listeners, you know, can hop between the parts that are interesting or relevant to them. So we'll start off with part one, which is talking about moving to Indonesia. You described before that you had this overwhelming feeling that you wanted to be there and you couldn't really explain it. Now, I think that's quite normal Like a lot of the time when you go and travel. How did you know that oh, this is where I'm going to bunker down and, and make something off, off this place? I would have never described myself as an intuitive person growing up. Uh, I grew up in a family of lawyers. I studied law myself and it, it is actually kind of frowned upon to, to even describe yourself as intuitive, but there's no other w uh, way to describe it as in, I just, I just, I just had this gut feeling, this intuition that, that this place was for me and that things would happen. Uh, there was absolutely no logical certainty in it. As I explained, it was, Um, especially now I know how, how hard it is looking back into the way I did things. It's like, wow, I was really lucky for things to happen the way they did. I guess, I guess the challenges going back to your question were so many that I never really, I guess it's like that beginner's ignorance of not, not even grasping the, the, the challenges and just saying, well, I just want to stay here and uh, I need to figure out how. And I guess I just, rather than focusing on the challenges, I focused on myself and my self-growth and took everything from a beginner's perspective and just completely opened up to absorb uh, as much knowledge as possible um, about the area and to shape myself into the person I needed to be in order to succeed here. Do you think that, you know, doing that as someone who was young and, you know, who hadn't been bitten before. You know, there's the old saying, once bitten, twice shy. Now, how, you know, I was 24 when I sort of jumped into Indonesian investing. You, I think you were quite similar, weren't you, in age? You were about 24 as well. In my case, I was in my late 20s, yeah. For the younger listeners, do you think that it's sometimes better to jump in 
to investing into Indonesia when you're younger because you haven't had that experience, that life experience, which would probably stick up a lot of red flags because it is a difficult country to navigate? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's really important for me to like set the set set the whole background of this. I had just finished my law degree. I had studied some postgrad studies in in the United States and kind of realized that's not the way I wanted my life to go, being in an office eight hours a day. As a young as a fresh graduate lawyer, it's not like you're sitting in a fortune. So I didn't come here with an investor mindset. I came here with a working mindset. And and this is what's actually the craziest part of it all because I, I didn't really reflect on how things would work for me financially on the long run. You know, it wasn't until like year two or three when it really hit me. Like, wow, like if I stay here any longer, I may not be able to go back, uh, you know, to go back to a law career, which is so like, it's such a strict upward ladder in law, you know? So if you're not climbing, you're falling kind of. So yes, it was a little bit. That's scary. That's, um, that, 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 that's a, that's a big decision that you had to make. Yeah, it was a scary thought. And, and funny enough, the, the thought didn't come until about two years in. Uh, but at this point, I really believed in the projects I was doing. Uh, I really believed in myself. I had seen myself go from not knowing anything about the place to being quite familiar with the area. And I kind of placed my, myself in, 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 in the hands of the project I was doing developing. And I didn't really look back much because it was scary looking back. It's funny you mentioned that because it's almost like back then, and this is sort of leading into the next question, um, when you came to Lombok, there really wasn't a lot going on um, in terms of foreign investment, um, particularly on the South Coast. Yet, you know, and I look back as well, I think, oh, Lord, like I could have done things so much better. But I guess that's that's the fun of, of Indonesia, I guess, and, and investing in another country is that you're always learning. Yeah, that's right. And and just tying into your previous question, like because I didn't come with an investor mindset, I guess, and because I was young, as you said, um, yeah, I guess I guess my whole mindset was very different, and it it, it made me act very intuitively, and and it, and it worked out for the better, definitely. I mean, I think if I had at any point sat down from a linear logical career perspective to assess my 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 situation, I would have definitely not found any logical arguments to stay and I'd be back home in an office working eight to 10 hours a day, Monday to Saturday. Agree. And I think in that initial stages of, of setting up a hospitality business and getting into hospitality, it's about relationships. And you know, if you, if you think you can't think of relationships as a career, there's something that you, you build over time and you work on and coming in with a perspective of being genuine I think really helps you in a, in a place that hasn't had a lot of investment before. So how, how has your relationship, you know, changed with the locals since you've sort of arrived and you formed those relationships to now as they're starting to see the benefits of that relationship come through in the, in the form of uh, increased work, etc. Yeah. Well, it's, it's been really, it's been really interesting. As, as you mentioned, uh, there's, there's, there's two parallels. There's the parallel of the growth of the island developing, like, uh, as you mentioned, when I came here, uh, there was a small little fishing town called Kuta that had about maybe I'd say 30 ho- very small hotels. Like the normal hotel back then was, when I say hotel, I mean like 10 rooms. The big ones had 15, 20. To what it is now uh, in the process of finishing a MotoGP circuit. 
a lot of development has come and with it a lot of a lot of money so there's been the growth of the area which has definitely seen the local people benefit from but there's also been uh the age growth in us so i met many of these guys that that i now like were neighbors and live together with i met them 10 years ago so they were in their teens or in their 20s and now they've grown to have businesses of them of of themselves uh it's quite amazing like the development of of people here in terms not only of financial growth but as personal growth you know you see very talented photographers uh DJs um local people starting much more interesting uh restaurant concepts so there's definitely been a, a significant level of of change brought in by tourism and development and investment into the area um I'm a positive thinker I uh, for sure we could make a list of negatives but at this point I think you'd need to look much harder for the negatives than the overwhelming amount of positives that we see uh in this last 10 years of development in the south of Lombok It's funny I was looking at photos the other day when I was in Lombok and now this is 8 years now and you're right these little kids who are I've still got the bracelets on my leg from the very first trip um that I came there we were all dancing on the beach um <laughs> and I was looking at the photos of those kids and I'm I'm still friends with them now but yeah you're right they're all no young young men young women now um in their early 20s and and doing good things so it's it's quite um quite encouraging what did you miss most uh, what did you miss most about when you moved to Indonesia i mean certainly uh, that that's a massive cultural change for you as well Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know it's funny because when 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 as I said when you're in that kind of like sponge mindset, like you're so interested in your surroundings, I was so interested in learning the language. I was so blown away by the surf, you know, I was just surfing a lot and enjoying surfing a lot and meeting people and not only people but opening myself to completely different worlds. My partners worked in uh my previous partners worked in the financial world in Singapore and Hong Kong and it's just everything was so so stimulating back then that I didn't really think much of the things I missed I obviously missed home uh missed my family but I guess like I said like at around year 2 or 3 you start to really ask yourself a few questions and one of the things I realized I missed a lot were barbecues like Saturday Sunday feeling in in you know your usual weekday and weekend you know just sharing with friends the fact that we all had time off at the same time and getting together that was different here i guess here everybody worked 7 days didn't really work all day long but we were kind of on call all week i think we especially back in those days we and i'm by, by we i mean the people living here doing similar jobs to me we kind of lost all structure as as i was living here and reassessing my life i realized that it is very important to keep some structure in your in your week and i now do weekends again and most of my friends do weekends as well so now we have the barbecues again but i would have to say barbecues <laughs> that's that's awesome in the hype of you know starting a business you lose track of time 
and definitely structure because you're continuously fighting fires. And in the process of fighting fires, you neglect to fight the fire within. So that's a really important point is that you have to take breaks when you're embarking on a journey like this. Otherwise, one, you lose friends, two, you lose purpose, and three, you just burn yourself out. Totally. 100% agree, yes. Extremely important. What do you know now about life in Indonesia that, you know, you wish you knew back then, aside from, you know, what you just said about structure? Well, you know, I, I, I think every stage of, of my of, of every person's life has a value. I think... Uh, there's tremendous value in, in what we see, what we look back into as mistakes. Um, and yes, definitely it would be precisely what you said. Like when you're f- busy uh, with what's around you and with, and with putting out fires, as you perfectly described it, you often forget the fire burning within. And precisely that, uh, what you just narrated was my, my personal experience. I, I came to a point where I completely lost track of why I came here. Uh, that kind of thirst for security, for establishing myself here, um, kind of made a complete parallel with life at home. And uh, there came a point where it was pretty unrecognizable whether I was living the same life I was living before. So I kind of like circled back to what I was pretty happy to have left, which is that kind of constant seeking for security through more security, through uh, a better financial standing, through more projects, more work. And you end up neglecting yourself a lot and burning out, as you mentioned. And that was kind of exactly my case. I guess that was my, my second big epiphany living here. Like that was the, the, the closing of the first cycle of life here, which was, to understand that I needed to find the balance and remember why I came. One thing that I'm, no, I remember that exactly that moment that you're talking about. We, we went for a surf and you told me, man, I haven't been for a surf in a couple of months. And that's when I knew that you were just strung out. Like if you're not surfing, if you're not doing the things that you actually went there to do, that's when you needed to re- reevaluate. Yeah, absolutely. And, and unfortunately, it's so much of a mindset thing. I can't victimize myself and say I didn't go surf because I never had any time during the day to go surf. It's, it's, it, it has a lot to do with personal choices. You know, I, I guess it's normal to go into a negative cycle. And then, yeah, I did arrive to that point where I realized I had lost all the, all the beauty, all the motivation that helped me here in the beginning. And that was, I guess, the first struggle point of, of, of living here about five years into life here. We're going to swap into part two. Now, this is about purchasing land and um, building in Indonesia. So now purchasing land, it is definitely a challenge. Now, what three tips do you have for purchasing land in Indonesia? Yeah, so let me just frame my answer. And this would be advice, I guess, I would be giving people who are buying land in remote areas of Indonesia. I think it's important to make a distinction not all of Indonesia is the same. Obviously, urban areas, there's been land transactions happening there uh, for much longer, and there's a lot more um, security in transactions in areas such as those. When, when I mean remote areas, it's important, I guess, tip number one is to understand the context of where you are and where you're investing. You're investing in areas of land that has been very recently populated. 
uh, I came to understand this through communicating a lot with local people. And, 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 and I was quite impressed to find out that some areas of the south of Lombok have been populated as little as 50 years ago. So these areas were pretty much land that belonged to no one. People came at some point and, and appropriated them. So there was basically, henceforth, not, not much value in them. And there were definitely, Indonesia was a young nation, and there was definitely not a lot of interest in recording who the owner of a property was. Therefore, I, I think this is the reality of most places in, in remote Indonesian destinations. Um, so therefore, it's very important to understand this. So tip number one would be understand your surroundings, kind of ask around. This might seem a little bit far out, but it's quite important to understand the history of the area where you're in. As a result mm-hmm. of that, tip number two is as you as you are looking for land, place a lot of value in land that has a more consistent story, land that has that is being sold by the person who who has been the owner for longer, if this is possible. This is when when investing in more remote areas of Indonesia, you will still be buying from the original families that have owned them for generations. So if it's possible for you to buy from these families directly, this is a better way and get to know them and get to understand basically their family tree. Because tip number two is be very cautious of family relationships. Many of the many of the land around here is owned by families as a whole, and it's considered a family a family asset, a family property. And it is important to see that within the family, there's a clear understanding of which land belongs to who, and if it hasn't been properly uh, separated amongst brothers or inheritors, it's very important to to make sure that you have all the documents signed by the family uh, stating their agreement to your purchase. Uh, this would be for very remote areas, right? In some cases, like in the case of Kuta, uh, where, where I live, if you came here now, you would most likely not be buying from the original owners. You'd be buying from two or three transactions down, which comes to tip number three. When land has had a few more transactions, land that is more established, land that has a certificate that has been around for longer, Perhaps not very old certificates. Very old certificates have their own issues. But if you see that there's a fence in place, if you see acts of ownership over the land, this is this is normally safer land to buy. So yeah, tip yeah. number one, understand your surroundings and the land history. Tip number two, uh, going back into the land history, make sure that if it's family land, everybody in the family is in agreement with your purchase. And tip number three, always, always privilege land that has clear signs of ownership, like fences, defined boundaries. And obviously, this is these tips are no substitute for your usual legal due diligence and your good old asking around the town if this land is a safe purchase. Absolutely. Really good tips. Really, really good tips there. And if I may add, I'll add one more tip, which is get in touch with with the local community of expats. Uh, there's a wealth of information yes. uh, in every expat community. And, you know, you can easily go have a coffee, introduce yourself, be nice and humble. And you can find a lot of knowledge through people who have been here longer. 
I agree, one one hundred percent. That community, and and you know what, some people might have already looked at that piece of land, and will save you the time and the hassle, and tell you not to bother paying a lawyer to even look at it. That's right. Next question is about legal work. You touched on it before, um, and having your due diligence done on land before you purchase it. Now, how do you find a good good lawyer in an area that's underdeveloped? Well, that is a very tricky question. I think as things have evolved here, there have been some new faces showing up and doing much more serious and diligent work. It used to be very difficult to find good legal consultants. I think the task is getting easier. Again, speaking to the expat community and finding out who they trust is important. Uh, I can't, I don't think it's, it's pertinent to say names uh, out loud here in this podcast, but I think when people come, they communicate, they can find who the, who the better consultants are. And nowadays you can get some better advice, but I don't think anything substitutes your own diligence of asking around, of meeting people and perhaps getting a, an expat on board to advise you on the purchase. I agree. From my personal experience as well, you want to find a lawyer or a notary that you actually get along with as well because that, that trust needs to carry through for the duration of your business venture there. So don't just jump in and commit to the first lawyer that you meet. Speak around and, and definitely make sure that you actually get along with the lawyer. Absolutely. You've worked on big projects around the world. What is your tried and, and tested methodo- methodology that, that everyone should be applying to their projects? Do you mind going through it step by step? Well, I guess my, my test and tried has come from developing mostly in here. And I guess step one is always start slow, uh, go slowly, divide everything into smaller pieces. It's very important not to be perceived as a walking ATM or an easy target. So I think that when, when you act a little bit slower and more cautiously at first, you have much better chances of succeeding. This will give you more time to, again, bond better with the community, bond better with the expat community. It is it is a hard place to navigate just because it's not the kind of place where you can pick up the yellow pages and call somebody to fix your toilet. You know, even, even finding <laughs> yes. something as simple as somebody to fix your toilet or your air con, yeah, requires some gathering of information. And, and that gathering of information of trustworthy information becomes the number one most important tool. So yes, uh, the tried and true method is start slow, build a network. And once you, once you have a good network, you can embolden yourself to start to, to go for bigger steps. I'm, I'm, I'm again framing this as a small in, uh, lifestyle investor as myself. If you had to ask a builder 10 questions, what would they be? Well, I don't think I would never want to ask 10 questions. <laughs> I would, uh, <laughs> uh, I think a little bit like uh, touching on what you said, Kyle, you need to find somebody that you feel good with personally, but you, you should go past that personal. Of course, the, the personal intuitive aspect is important, but it is very important to see their resume. And this is what becomes really tricky around here. So, uh, you will find that people tell you, this was my project, uh, my project, this. And if you go inquire, he might have done the drywalls or the ceilings somewhere, but he might have not done the whole project. 
in most Western countries, lying about your resume would be considered a, a complete deal breaker. But, but here it's quite often that this happens. You need to be a little bit flexible, I guess. I guess when you're looking to invest, it's always better to go the safer way. And I think that at this point, there is a big enough expat community and there are a few expat builders which may not be as cheap as your local builders, but they will definitely remove a lot of headaches from you. Just on that as well, Ali, sorry to interrupt you, because um, I made that mistake, right? So the, the builder that I honestly chose that I lost a lot of money with, he said that he had all these projects and we went and had a look at them. It's only afterwards that I found out that he had only done parts of them, like the interior design or you know, the furniture layouts and stuff like that. So really, really important point because that's what got me unstuck. That's right. From that point of view, uh, and this is why I said I probably wouldn't ask them questions, the reality here is that, and this applies all the way to management in, in, in many kind of lower positions when you're hiring your you know, your waiters, your cleaners, the interview is a lot less important uh, than your experience. And this is where I come back to the step-by-step. Like if you're looking to use a builder, perhaps try to start with your civil works in your project first. Give him a little test, you know, uh, see that he actually shows up, see see the way that he that he sets up his site and so on. Perhaps you're, you don't have building experience, then find somebody, again, I'm talking from the perspective of a lifestyle investor, somebody who's going to probably be here. And if you're not going to be here, find somebody who can, who can guide you through the process, who can tell you, oh, I like the way he's setting his side up because you can tell a lot of a builder just by the way he sets his side up. You can tell a lot from the builder just by uh, giving him small jobs and see how he executes those. So again, coming back to the methodology of starting slow, don't disperse all your capital straight away unless unless you're doing a, a bigger project and you have time constraints. In that case, I would again go to advice, find a very reputable expat builder who's going to cost you a bit more, but it's going to remove a lot of headaches. Now, you love the locals uh, in Lombok and you've got an incredible relationship with them that you've built on trust uh, from exactly that, from starting small and, and growing not just the business there, but your relationships. Why do you approach your business with such an open heart? You know, do you feel like this res- respect is reciprocated and and or, or do, you, do you get the feeling that you can be taken advantage of because you do wear your heart on your sleeve? Well, you know, in my case, I just wouldn't want it any other way. I think being authentic to people and giving people a chance, an opportunity is is the way to go. I, I wouldn't like to be walking around with a heavy armor, you know. It's it's heavy and exhausting to be always protecting yourself. Uh, so again, I, I guess you're going to hear me say this a lot, but my methodology is to start small, like give people small trust, small... Um, small incentives, small uh, actions, and this is how you develop a network over time. Uh, some people will fail you, and if you wear it as a, as, a, as a personal assault or if you take it personal at any point, uh, you're gonna have a hard time living here. You will find that people are not always truthful, but this is true anywhere. For me, it's important to keep an open heart um, give people opportunities and if they fail you uh, write it down on your black book but don't take it don't take it personal you know you see them in the street you say hello you're happy to see them 
uh, and you forget the incident and you keep moving ahead. I guess that's been my motto throughout the last 10 years. Like, bad events are learnings and just make your learnings as cheap as possible. Don't, the expensive learnings are the ones you want to you wanna stay away from. It's really important as well for listeners to understand that the definition of trust, it changes between cultures. So, for example, in, in a Western country, we would perceive trust based on a number of, of things that may not be the same as how trust is defined in Indonesian society. So perhaps if you're working in a society who are quite religious, you know, they would perhaps trust you more if you were a religious person as well. So I think it's really important that we need to bear in mind that there are cultural differences that actually change the definition of trust as well. Absolutely. What are some ways that you motivate your staff to be better? Well, this is a good one because it, it kind of touches a little bit on giving people opportunities, right? And, and the fact that as things are less structured here, there's no such thing as resumes. And one of the things that I find most appealing when I do, because I, I obviously interview uh, any prospect staff, and this, this most especially applies to kind of like your, your general staff, your cleaners, your waiters, your, your more low-level staff, the most important asset for me in a person, and this goes all the way to management, is that I see in them uh, a will to learn, uh, kind of like a beginner attitude. So I don't really motivate my staff to want to be better. I choose staff who I see in them that desire to be better. So it's more like you don't choose the student, but the, stu- the student chooses the teacher. What I what I try to continuously do is to become a vehicle for them to grow through and stay open to to their shortcomings. If they have shortcomings, but I see an attitude of learning, I'm really happy um, to, in as much as I can, uplift them and, and teach them new things. And I have tried to apply this throughout my business structure from the manager down. And in all of us, there be a philosophy of continuous growth and learning, an absolute an absolute, the absolute importance value, uh, most important value is that desire to grow. One thing that I learned quite quickly, given the non-confrontational nature of, of Indonesians, is that criticism almost always needs to be constructive because criticism delivered in the wrong way actually has a disproportionate ability to destroy their self-worth and, and their motivation as well. Yes, absolutely. I, I I think it's really important to to understand that we are coming from very different places. Uh, we are in very different cultural environments. In the case of working in hospitality, um, most of our staff are people who have never stayed in a hotel or eaten in a restaurant. So we can't treat them the way we would treat perhaps someone from our own culture who has been going to restaurants since they're young and staying in hotels and heard from their parents what's good or bad in a restaurant or a hotel. So I think there needs to be uh, a significant level of understanding and perhaps compassion is not the best word, but a significant level of knowing where they come from. Forgiveness. And as you say, I mean, you, you need to adapt and you need to understand when they have an open, an open heart, um, and they are here willing to learn and they place themselves in, in that, in that humble position. You need to be humble yourself and understand that it's going to take some time. And 
things slowly start to gear up and then you start to create a culture within your business and things start to work the way you like it. And that's when, that's when all the satisfaction comes. It's always going to be a little bit difficult at first. We're going to shift into part three now. And this is about running a hotel business. You don't have a website. You hate emails. Tell me a little bit more. <laughs> yeah. Well, I guess, I guess 10, li- 10 years living in a remote island changed you a bit, right? I don't know what it is, but I, I, I guess, I guess it's the fact that I rarely sit behind the laptop. I, I made a point in my life to not want or have to live a life where I need to sit in an office behind the laptop most of the time. So yeah, I prefer if you need me, chat me up or call me, you know? Yes, we have completely replaced email in my, in, in my businesses. We've replaced email with WhatsApp. Uh, a lot of people tell me, that they find it hard to trace back conversations in WhatsApp. Uh, what we do is that we have different groups that are specific to different topics. So, for example, the kitchen would have a chat group. The housekeeping department would have a chat group. The management department, the accounting department. And when I need to trace back to conversations, I simply do a search to that conversation. I guess also it's it's worth saying that this is more on the day-to-day operation. So it's more repetitive stuff. It's more being on top of things. Um, when it comes to websites, similar thing. I mean, I guess I, I come from my personal experience and the experience of the people I have around me. When I want to book a hotel or go to a restaurant, I will never, ever go to their website. So I find it a little bit, a little bit useless to have a website. We have booking agents. I mean, people who want to stay in a hotel nowadays – mostly check through your Airbnbs, Agoras, Booking.com. So it's important to have a good presence there and social media. Social media is the new website. People are browsing through, you pop Mm. in their feeds and that's how they find you. I don't think websites, I mean, I guess if you're, if you're developing and selling property, just because of the volume of information you need to have, it'd be good to have a website. I guess when you need volumes of information is where websites become more important. So yeah, don't use websites or emails. A totally different way of looking at things, but nevertheless may align with other people's views on how they want to actually live their life as well. Now, what have you learned um, about hospitality in the last year that you didn't necessarily know before and it's not just in with specific reference to covid it's just uh, in general well i guess like the covid situation speaking about uh our hotel um we we've been very lucky because we're a villa resort and through this situation villas have performed best of all better than restaurants and better than uh, normal hotels because as prices have reduced a lot of people are staying here more long term a lot of restaurants have closed, so people are looking for a villa where they can go do their shopping and they can cook their own food and also take advantage of the fact that prices are really good. Uh, we have a lot of digital nomads. Most of the people who have stayed are people who are living off their savings or are working online somehow. For all of them, it's made a lot of sense to just uh, rent villas. So the villa business has done has, has managed to survive much better than any others. Yeah, when it comes to my restaurant, there's not a lot to do for COVID except to adapt to the fact that you have a lot less clientele and uh, and gear your operation towards it, reduce cost as much as possible. In our case, we've had to 
to reduce the opening days, we found that we were much better off opening just a couple of days a week rather than every day uh, because there is more of a, of a permanent population then everybody knows like Monday is Mexican day and they go for, they go for Mexican food on Monday. If you're open every day, you end up going through loss. Did you have to change your contracts with your employees to do that? To only work two days a week or three days a week? Well, in, in, in our case, when it comes to the employees, we have, we've have, a, we've always had different structures. Again, I have different businesses, but in general, I always structure the permanent stuff. And, and then we have daily workers. So daily workers are used for surplus since we naturally have different seasons, uh, season volumes of seasonal volumes of tourism. Uh, we, we are used to adapting to more and less tourism from a business model perspective. Uh, so I guess what we've had to do in many of our cases, and I speak for most of us in the tourism industry is, pretty much bring down daily workers to zero and trying as much as possible to keep our full-time staff, which I know in many cases for many businesses hasn't been possible. Uh, in the case of my restaurant, it hasn't been possible. So we had to lay off all of our staff and now we have our previous permanent staff as daily workers. In the case of the villas, we've been luckier and we've been able to keep all of them on board. Yeah. It's just the way things are for many of for many of us through these times. How will you change your hotel business model um, as a result of COVID going into the future after COVID? There's a massive um, level of uncertainty at the moment. We don't know if things will go back to normal, things like business as usual or not. I guess it's very important to stay open, to be flexible but I can't say that I have a straight plan in my head because I don't think that the situation is clear enough to start to adapt to. Um, at the moment, we have closed borders. We have massively reduced international tourism. The way to adapt is to reduce the operation. As things, as things recover, we're going to see if there's going to be a full recovery or a partial recovery, and that's when business models will be adapted. But for the moment, other than the new sanitary conditions, new normal conditions, uh, there's not much else for, uh, from my point of view to be done in a sector as tourism, especially restaurants. I think one thing that will probably change is that the new normal that you mentioned of hygiene and, and almost people's preference shifting towards more premium accommodation, which can actually afford to have that service available what tactics are you planning on deploying and and do you deploy now that ensures that your staff work to the highest standard um, for a premium accommodation provider like Kumbara Villas yes so from a health sanitary perspective we've uh, equipped them with the obvious masks and gloves we've done an education on on being very careful uh, to wash their hands regularly but as we know by by this time, it is this is a very difficult to avoid virus. It, it, there 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 are the precautions that can be taken, and that significantly reduces your chances of exposure. I mean, in the case of villas, uh, we have seven villas, so we're not huge. We don't have a vast amount of volume of people coming in and out. 
so I guess the the villas are relatively safe. So we take the precautions that have been given by the World Health Organization. And uh, when it comes to the restaurant, similar thing. I think there's more risk definitely involved in restaurants. So we disinfect tables as soon as people leave. And again, try to keep enough separation. Um, in the case of, of most uh, businesses here, they're generally more open air. And this being more of a tropical country, I think like the, the possibilities of spread are much, much, much smaller. And the statistics prove my opinion. Uh, there's definitely not a lot of COVID going on uh, in, in this, in this area, particularly in, in Lombok, there's, 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 it's extremely rare. We don't hear about people getting infected. We hear about people getting infected in Bali, but similar thing at a very, at a very low rate. So we take the basic precautions and, and educate our staff, especially that if they don't feel well to not come to work, I think that's, that's a really important one. Um, I think the best way to stop the right. virus is to be very self-aware and know that if you're not feeling well, you shouldn't tough it out and go to work because if you if you're in the early stages of the virus, you can spread it quite quickly. Even even if precautions are being taken, the best precaution is to stay at home when you're sick. Now your um your standards in general. So I'm talking about housekeeping standards, levels of service. How do you maintain those? No COVID aside, and what are some things that you do? to make sure that your staff are working to the highest standard? Well, the, I think the most important thing in, in, in managing any hospitality business is anywhere, but particularly here where you have less professional staff is to make sure of things. It's to, to be constantly checking by yourself, you know? So we've set a, a variety of different systems to keep everybody accountable. So, from the way that responsibility is 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 placed, specific uh, staff are responsible for specific areas of the resort, and there's a there's a checklist of what they need to do and how they need to do it, and they need to check that they have actually done it, and they need, and then they need to call in a supervisor. Uh, for example, right before a villa is given to a guest, there needs to be a quality check done, and that quality check is reported. Uh, through a WhatsApp chat and with photographs that keeps everybody accountable. The cleaning staff needs to report that it's been done to, and then the supervisor needs to make sure that it's been done to a standard that's all sent to the top management and we have access to see it directly. And then a lot of random checks, same as with the restaurant, um, similar situation. You have, um, you have specific responsibilities in the case of waiters. They are responsible for a certain area of the restaurant and you need to do a lot of checking yourself. I agree. Being present and checking the work yourself is, is a massive one in maintaining standards purely because people drift towards what they know. And when you're trying to create a culture of high performance, you need to constantly reinforce the standard and that takes time. We're going to shift into part four of, of this podcast, which is running a restaurant. So the Mexican in town, your restaurant in South Lombok, uh, it's a massive hit in the South Coast. You know, I, I remember when you were first taking tiles off the, the existing building that was there and, and, and creating this, this beautiful vision off, off the restaurant. Can you explain to people what your vi vision was when you first started? 
specific things that turned it into reality that that created that vibe that is so special to the Mexican in town. Thank you for for considering the place special. It, it definitely has been a very special and interesting journey for myself. It actually started as a completely unexpected thing. I was working in in property development. I had I had just had my my burnout that I touched a little bit on the first part of the interview and uh, I was uh, I had sold out of my of my first business and previous company and I was sitting trying to figure out what to do and uh, more than anything uh, decluttering my mind and my my partner my girlfriend at the time uh, was really into cooking and we would do Mexican food at home and it had always been my dream to um, being born in Mexico and growing up with this really good food living here I, I missed it quite a lot so we would cook and then the idea slowly came about to open a restaurant that would bring this experience to people to be honest I was completely terrified of opening a restaurant I knew I knew the amount of work that goes into it as I had managed one at home for for about a year and it, it was it was quite a quite a difficult experience. I know it's extremely time consuming, but as girlfriends do, she slowly but surely convinced me and she kind of knew my mantra <laughs> start and small. So so she convinced me to start small and that's what we did. We started out with a little food cart. The town at the time, this was 2015, and the town at the time was, was tiny, and any new food option was was highly welcome. So, turned out the food cart did really well, um, and slowly but surely we we grew the business from a small food cart and four tables to a quite full blown restaurant operation. We now have around 80 seats in the house and. Pre-COVID, we we were doing really well. We were very happy with the product, and we had a really good response from the from all the guests visiting. It's so funny because it, Mexican food is inherently simple, yet to nail it, <laughs> it's incredibly dif- difficult. So yeah, absolutely, it's an incredible story, and it just points out to your strategy of starting small, like you said, starting with the cart, and then growing the business to what it is now, which um, you know, set seats, 80 people. That's, that's absolutely incredible. Aside from, you know, the, the process of going from sm- starting small, what else have you learned about the restaurant industry um, since starting the Mexican in town four years ago? Uh, well, I guess my experience in the restaurant industry started when I was a kid going to a lot of restaurants. <laughs> I've always, I've always loved food and uh, I've always had a passion for, for quality food and service. I always dreamed of having a restaurant. I, um, I had, a, I had a shot at working in a restaurant while I was still in El Salvador, managing my uncle's restaurant for a while, changing menus. And I've learned that passion is extremely important and, and it's very important to keep it. Yeah, the key to the soul of a restaurant is, is the passion behind it. Always wanting to come up with new things, always never settling for just being good, always, always looking at ways to improve and, and, and truly enjoying the process of, of becoming better. Uh, this is something that I think we have been able to achieve in the restaurant really well uh, with my partner and myself. We are both very critical of, 
of things and and are always looking for ways to grow and and, and bring new flavors and new experiences to people so passion would be one uh, very important element and the second very important element which is something i applied to all of my businesses is to have really concrete simple processes the more you can simplify your processes and hand out people their responsibilities and hold them accountable for them the more mechanical processes become the easier it is to have a consistent quality so it's a mix of passion for the development of of things for new flavors for uh, new experiences and then marrying that with very systematic follow-up when it comes to the systems to implement it you touched on a point there about keeping things simple and and one thing that i noticed just as a general observation not just in indonesia but in business in general is that as a business grows they drift towards complexity not simplicity so it's something that i guess always has to be in the back of your mind is how do we make things simpler as we grow so really great point that you raised there now you source um part of your vision was that you'd source all your ingredients locally why was this really important to you well obviously especially back when we started uh five years ago we we lived in a pretty remote area so if you wanted to go do your shopping uh you'd have to drive one hour and i understood that this could be a really big um a really big rock in our shoe if we relied on sourcing our our ingredients far away so we kind of did the the reverse logical thinking of let's adapt our menu to what's available there were some specific mexican staples that we required and that was uh, a very important part of the initial sourcing but then we pretty much designed our menu around what was available here and what was easy to execute with consistent quality so again starting small and making sure that what we do is a firm step forward uh, as we have operated things have really changed and now we can get things delivered from the main city which is an hour away mataram so we are able to venture a little bit more into into a little bit of more of complexity as you say i think i think the key to any business is to find a good balance between innovation and what what i call passion right new things new experiences but done in a sustainable way sustainable in the sense of execution but a big mantra of a restaurant has also been sustainability in everything we do trying to produce less garbage trying to produce a lower uh, carbon footprint where possible we try to be as responsible as possible with every aspect of the business and i think this is this is a great fascinating topic which is to move as effortlessly as possible while at the same time delivering as much quality as possible and i think that people can kind of taste and sense this the things are done effortlessly but what's in the plate has passion delivered yeah that's that's certainly true mate i'm just thinking about those fish tacos i could <laughs> mate put them in the post and and send it through to me over here in perth <laughs> what are what are three things that you wish you had done at the restaurant at the early stages of designing it now what would you change about the layout of the space were there certain is certainly in my experience the first time you do it is an incredible amount of learning now what are some things that listeners should be aware of in designing their their restaurant space well I mean in my personal experience as I mentioned I started from a cart so 
I had the opportunity to to do a little bit of uh, of trying along the way, you know. So I, I got I got the opportunity to see what worked, what didn't work. I didn't start out the way I am, so I guess every change responded to a need. So as we were operating, we would see a need and we would grow into it. As a as a enthusiast designer that I have become, I always kept a grand design in my head, and there still is. It's not. 100% executed even until now. So the restaurant continuously grows and expands with a general direction in mind. And that general direction changes through what we see through the operation. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't be able to tell you that I have things that I regret. I guess, you know, there would be tiny things like I should have made the bathroom a little bit bigger or, you know, the direction that I moved the water in the roof could have been better another way. But these are, these are not big things. I guess if I were to give advice to people who are designing a space nowadays is just design something that is fresh and attractive, uh, that has a character of its own and that, uh, says something. I think it's very easy to fall into, into cookie cutters. And, uh, from what I see in this town is that this is a very small town, but it's mostly filled with entrepreneurs that are very passionate and creative. So try to bring in your personality and, and your creativity and give it, give it identity because I think that's what really speaks to the, to the clientele. Sticking to, I guess, a fad. Fads quickly get outdated, but your own creativity never really does. You can always pick the restaurants that have been designed with passion and those that have been designed as a cookie-cutter design. Now, finishing off on this topic of restaurants... What's the funniest thing that you've ha- seen happen at your restaurant? Oh, wow. Well, I don't know if I can disclose the funny things that I've been a part of. <laughs> We've had uh, <laughs> quite a lot of experiences. It's five years in the running. You know, I can't really say. We, we are we're a pretty normal place, okay, for the record. <laughs> the occasional dancing, you know, the occasional getting a little bit loose over there, but... Nothing nothing comes to mind specifically. Well, look, Ali, that's um we're gonna wrap this podcast up, but I've got two more questions. What does Lombok look like for you in fifty years time? What do you hope it to look like? Now what what message do you want for new investors in Lombok to take on board that allows it to to stay the beautiful place that it is, I guess? I guess the question has two questions. What what I see happening and what what I wish would happen. And I'm gonna focus on the second one and uh, what I've seen in in Lombok this far is more and more people coming in with a passion and with creativity, uh, doing boutique, highly passionate projects, and and it speaks. The town is developing as a town uh, which is full of little gems, cafes, hospitality, accommodation. There, there's a lot of passion in 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 the people that are doing business here. So it's not a cold cut. Let's make money kind of business. I think this is really beautiful and and I do hope that the trend continues. I know that it's very difficult over time, especially on a 50 year time frame with the inclusion of big uh, developments such as the MotoGP track that's, that's in progress. My hopes would be that inevitably when big businesses come, this big businesses come with, with a little bit of, of an intuition for what's already here, which is businesses that are passionate, businesses that are uh, ecologically conscious. And I would like to see that particular sustainability trend continue over time and increase. 
as we know, people come here for the natural beauty of the place. And I think it's incredibly important to whatever is being done, uh, try to be as sustainable as possible and as, as, as little impactful as possible in the local culture and the environment. I think it's our responsibility to keep the place green, beautiful and clean. Last question, Dob and a friend. Now, who do you think would inspire other people in the hospitality industry in Indonesia that I should interview after this? Oh, wow. Interesting one. Could be one or two people, whoever. Well, I guess I guess that I have a few few names in mind and it's it's again a little bit difficult to call names in in a in a public interview, but I would have to say that one of the people that have really inspired me over time uh, even though she's more in the circumference of the hospitality industry more in the architecture and sustainable development arena would be my good friend Paula Huerta she's she's such a passionate woman she's really inspiring uh, not only does she have like 700 design projects and construction but she's also really uh, really focused in sustainable development and she's been working in close cooperation with the local governments in creating composting facilities which I think is one of the most important things to to start to work on intensively if we want this area to develop sustainably so I would really recommend you speak with Paula well thank you and um, thank you for so, uh, being so honest and frank uh, with me and of course listeners and and for all the, all the work I know that you do in Lombok for the local community and the XCAP community as well. So thanks, mate. Thanks for making time. Anytime, Kyle. I'm happy to be able to share my experience. As as I said, this is my, my personal experience, my personal advice. I think things are going to be different for everybody and times have changed. Budgets are different. Personalities are different. I think the most important uh, piece of advice I could give anyone is come here with an open heart, be intuitive and enjoy the ride because if you're not enjoying it, you're in the wrong place. If you enjoyed this podcast and you'd like to help support the podcast, please share it with others, post about it on social media or leave a rating and a review. I personally reply to each review and message myself. Now, for all the show notes and links to information we discussed on the show today, simply head to our website on www.indonesiahospitality.com. We can also find bonus content to help you on your hospitality journey. Now, this podcast is about sharing the amazing stories that make up the Indonesian hospitality industry. Individually, we are incrementally better. Together, we are exponentially better. Until next time, sampai jumpa lagi and season greetings.